forgive me for my voice and sniffling because I have a bit of a cold. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 25 to 32. It's where we left off from last week. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Father, we thank you for your word and ask that this morning that you would speak to us and help us, Lord, to see your word as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that it speaks to us today. We just want to glorify you, Lord, in all this, in Jesus' name, amen. So what we have here now is a series of exhortations that issue from the reality of our position in Christ. So from verse 25 to, 20, or to, 25 to 32, you might have found that it's all practical exhortations of how we are to live our life, and that's the emphasis here right now. The apostle by the Holy Spirit. This is not just a man's word. This is God's word. He's actually instructing us on how we're to live. How we're to actually go about our day. So, July 4th and July 5th and July 6th. How we're to go about those three days even. The apostle's instructing us by the Holy Spirit. But it issues forth from what he had just said last week what we read. So what we read was of our position in Christ. When we became Christians, the Bible here says that we put off the old man, which was corrupt with all its deeds, and we put on the new man. We put off that. That was a past tense thing. As a Christian, you are no longer the old man. The old identity that was in Adam is now gone. And now you are a new man. And whose identity is that? Jesus Christ, right? The new man, the man Christ Jesus and the, the righteous one. That's now your identity. So you're no longer identify with the old man Adam. Now you are identify with the new man Christ. Not the new Jacob, but the new man Christ is your identity. And even in Ephesians we read how we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, right? Unto good works. 
We're created anew in Christ. We're that, that's the new creation. And it's not us, but it's him. And that's important to understand that when God sees you now, he doesn't see you as the person that you were. Think about that for a minute. When you sin today, you sin, right? And you think, oh, that's me, and man, I sinned, and now God sees me as a sinner. God does not see you as that sinner when he sees you. That's the old you, and that old you is dead. God now sees you, if you're a Christian and you've put your trust and your faith in him, God now sees you as a new creation, new creation in Christ, and therefore as totally righteous. And that's the good news of the gospel, is that, is that God actually can do that, which is an absolute mystery and miracle. Uh, he can do that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, taking our place. So that's the wherefore in verse 25. When it starts these practical exhortations, he says, therefore, wherefore, seeing that you are now a new creation, in Christ, seeing that you are now righteous in God's sight, you have a new identity and your old identity is dead and your old identity is condemned. God didn't just put it away because it was kind of defaulty. God put it away in condemnation. God said, your old man with all his deeds, I hate it and it's dead and I don't want that for you anymore. So do you understand that just because you believe in Christ and he sees you as a, as a new creation in Christ, that should tell you something. The fact that you needed to put on the new man and take a new identity means that God condemned your old man. And therefore, the exhortations issue out of that. If God hates and condemns, now therefore, the God who loves you, the God who gave his life, his son's life on the cross for you, the God who chose you and elected you and lavishes his grace on you, he hates the sin of the old man. Therefore, and he's instructing and teaching us to walk as the new man, to walk as Jesus, to become Christ-like. Not to earn salvation, because that's what we've got in him, but to simply walk suitably with that salvation. Don't turn there, but I'm going to read just a few verses in Romans chapter 6, where Paul talks about the old man being crucified with Christ. That's how the old man was put off. Because remember last week when the gospel is preached, it says, put off the old man. How do we do it? Do we t stop our sins and do we try to skin ourselves with a knife? How do we put off the old man? By believing the gospel, we are united to the death of Christ. The old man is then crucified with him. And Paul, after saying the old man is crucified, now he tells us how to live. And I just want to read these, these um, four verses, 11 to 14. This is how we live. This is why we live as a Christian. He says, Reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Very simple. Reckon it now that you are dead unto sin. You old, your old self, you have nothing to do with it anymore. And you are alive unto God through Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither present your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but present yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not 
have dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. So the same idea as Paul goes into these practical exhortations of how we're to live, that's the idea. It starts first by reckoning yourself to be dead unto sin and alive unto God, not under the law. And Paul says, because you're not under the law anymore, now we can begin to really live unto God. So, let's look at what these exhortations are. There is five here. Five practical exhortations. Now the first one, you'll notice, is lying. Lying. Wherefore, being dead unto sin and alive unto God, put away lying. Now it's interesting that he says lying here. And I find it interesting that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, which we read last week, where it talks also about the old man and the new man, if you remember that. It talks about the old man being put off, the new man being put on. There it mentions lying first, as a matter of fact. Paul says, lie not one to another, seeing you have put on the man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge of him that created him. Interesting that lying is mentioned in both parts. Lying. Lying is inconsistent with those who are now unified to the truth. God is a God of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Men come to me, to the light, and I am the truth. They come, but men don't want to come to me because they don't want to come into the truth. They don't want to do the truth. Everything about the gospel speaks of truth. It tells us our true condition as a sinner. It tells us the true way we're to be saved, and it tells us our true identity in Christ. Everything is about truth when we become Christians. Lying is inconsistent with even our salvation. You can't come to God and say that you have no sin. You make him to be a liar when you do that. Coming to God in salvation is a confession of your true condition as lost. This is now beyond just salvation. How ought we to live our lives lying or walking in truth? God wants us and his people to be people of truth. It's interesting that you when Jesus met Nathaniel for the first time, not Nathaniel Shelke, but when Jesus met Nathaniel, the disciple, for the first time, he, uh, do you remember what he said of him? He said, behold, an Israelite indeed, right? He says, this is an Israelite indeed. An Israelite meaning this is one of God's own people, indeed, in whom is no guile, right? No lie, no deceit. This was an honest man. It doesn't mean he was a sinless man. It means he was an honest man. Remember when Jesus said, the good soil are those with an honest heart. Remember that? In the parable of the sower. Honesty marks the people of God, and God wants the people of God, his own people, to be honest. Honesty. Now, there are so many religions in this world that pe the people that adhere to those religions are not honest. They walk in towards not only God, but towards one another in dishonesty. They don't confess their sins to one another, and they don't confess their sins to God, and they walk around thinking that they're righteous when really God knows their true condition. Honesty should mark us as believers, brothers and sisters. Honesty. 
in our walk with God, yes, and in our walk with one another. The world is full of lying. As a matter of fact, in Numbers 23, God actually says, and you might recognize, he says, God is not a man that he should lie, right? It seems like they're, being a man somehow is associated with being a liar. <laughs> God is not a man that he should lie. And that's true. We naturally lie. Why? Because if we're afraid, because we're ashamed, because we want people to like us, and everything is based upon performance, right? If I let Jacob know who I really am, Jacob will not want to be around me anymore. Therefore, I'm going to lie to Jacob, put on a front. Maybe I won't verbally lie to him. Maybe I just won't tell him the truth. I don't know, but I don't want him to reject me. This is the way the world functions and operates. Lying. So much lying out there. And it doesn't have to be these big black lies. It can be white lies. It can be just even without words. But it's because of fear and shame. It's because of sin that we lie. But God says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk anymore. Why is it that we don't have to walk in dishonesty and lying anymore? Why is it? Because of grace and because sin has been dealt with at the cross. And now there's no barrier between us and God and man to man anymore. There's no barrier because of the grace of God in Christ. So really when we lie to one another, we really are only hurting ourselves. We don't realize that coming to the light may be painful, yeah. Maybe it is painful to let others know who you really are. But that's the good way. That's the way of health. That's the way of truth. That's the way of God. And that is the way that he wants us to live. And true relationships, true relationships between people can only be had in truth. You want to have a true relationship, which is, of course, what God is calling us to as believers, as a church. We need to first start with lying and walking in the truth with one another. Now, Paul actually quotes an Old Testament verse here when he says, Lie not one to another, but speak every man truth with his neighbor. He's quoting Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. And uh, just turn there real briefly. I'll show you what the rest of the verse says. Zechariah chapter 8. This is when God is actually speaking a blessing over his people, over Jerusalem. And he gives them this practical instruction in verse 16 of chapter 8. Zechariah's second last book in the Old Testament. You'll find Paul is an avid quoter of the Old Testament. He was very, he, he drew all his teachings of grace from the Old Testament. But in verse 16, God says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor, Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. What is that? Truth and peace. What is that? As we've been learning in Ephesians. That is grace. That is righteousness as it is defined by the gospel. The judgment of truth and, the, and of peace is the gospel. So what he, is, what he is saying here is, look, now I want you to live in grace with one another and speak truth, everyone, to his neighbor. 
That's what God says. That's what he says we shall do. And Paul catches that and seizes that. Because the only true judgment there is is the judgment of the cross, as we've talked about before. This is all about living a life of grace, brothers and sisters. All of these exhortations, starting with this one all the way to the end of 32, is all about how do we live a life of grace? How do we live within the gates the judgment of truth and peace? And this is what it is. First off, lying. Second off, in verse 26, he says here, Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now, this is a difficult verse because there's lots of different interpretations about this verse. It is helpful to know, before we interpret it, that Paul again is quoting an Old Testament verse, and he's quoting here Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. You don't have to turn there if you'd like. You can. Psalm 4, verse 4. If you do turn to it in your Bibles, you'll probably, be, you'll probably notice that Paul quotes it a little differently than it is in the uh, translation that you have. Because in the Psalm 4, 4, in our Bibles, it says, uh, Stand in awe and sin not. Where Paul quotes, don't be, or he says, be angry and sin not. And in our Bibles, it says, stand in awe and sin not. Now, my mind is blank right now, but um, Masoretic, excuse me. So the Masoretic text actually is in Hebrew, and Paul's quoting from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And if you look at the Septuagint, it says, be angry and sin not. And actually, even those who study the Masoretic Hebrew say it would have been better translated be angry and sin not, even in the Hebrew. So it's sort of a mistranslation. So you go to Psalm 4.4, and it says the same thing. Be angry and sin not. Now, the context of the psalm, just real briefly, is David is in distress, but he trusts in God. He says, I'm in distress, but God, I put my trust in you. And then he addresses the sons of men, then he addresses men, and he says, be angry and sin not, put your trust in God. The difficulty with the interpretation is, is David giving a command to be angry? Is he telling them, be angry and sin not? There's actually some difficulty in, in, in translating this, whether it's a command, some people think. Is it a permissive statement? As in, if you must be angry, be angry, but don't sin. Or is it an interrogative question? Is it an interrogative where he says, are you angry? Don't sin. So it could be either of those three, actually. It's kind of a difficult verse to translate. But whichever it is, the basic point is that somebody's angry, and, or if you get angry, or whatever anger you're in, don't sin. That's the main idea of the verse. Angry, don't sin. Whether he's saying be angry, or maybe you're angry, or whatever. Don't sin in your anger is the point of the verse before us. Don't sin in your anger, and David's telling the sons of men, you're angry, don't sin, trust in God. This is what he says. Why does he say don't sin in your anger? Has anyone been angry before? (laughs) Caden, have you ever been angry before? Is it easy to sin or not easy to sin when you're angry? When you're angry, is it easy to say something mean? Or is it 
pretty difficult. It's easy, yeah, isn't it? When we're angry, it's very easy to sin when we get angry. Now, depending on how you interpret it, some would even say getting angry is sin. But the point is, is that when you're angry, don't sin. Because it is so easy to get angry. And he says here, let not the sun go down on your wrath. That's kind of an actual Hebrew expression. It doesn't mean literally, you know, wait till the sun goes down or don't wait. It just means deal with your anger quick. That's what it means. Don't let your anger drag on. Deal with it right away. Now, we've all been angry before. Is it easy to stop being angry or is it easy to continue to be angry? It's easy to continue. I remember once getting really angry and then I got angry that I got angry. You ever been in that situation before? Where you're angry that you got angry, and then you're angry that you got angry that you got angry, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And I realized there's only one way to, to deal with that, and that's just to stop it. It's just to confess it as sin and say, I'm going to put this away. Because we're waiting for what? It feels good to be angry, doesn't it? And we just want to stay angry. What are we waiting for? Some kind of atonement to go on? Or when he says, I'm sorry, or when I feel good and ready, or what? There, this verse is saying, look, deal with it immediately, right away. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Nip it in the bud. <laughs> Just because the atonement has been done. Everything is out of grace now. Why are we angry? Later, Paul tells us to put off being angry. Why are we angry? Why are we not putting it off? Jesus has died for all of our sins. So this is the sense of the verse. Are you angry? Don't sin by continuing it on. Don't sin by saying things in your anger. Just deal with it and put it off. Make the decision to walk in grace at that time. And then in verse 27, it's actually connected with verse 26. He says, don't give place to the devil. And the word, the, the, the word place there is simply room. Don't give room to the devil in your anger. As you fester in anger, and you don't deal with it right away, you give room to the devil. You give him space to bring in his anti-grace. Bitterness takes root and infects everybody. You know, it's interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, remember when Paul has to deal with this sinner in the church who's, who's doing this gross sin, and the church is dealing with it, and they do some church discipline. And Paul actually says, look, Everybody forgive this guy, lest Satan get an advantage of us all. That's what he says. He says, everyone forgive him, lest Satan take an advantage. Satan's getting a foothold in our lives, whether as a corporate body, as a church, and destroying a church, starts with unforgiveness or giving him room when we don't walk in grace. We give him room with bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and he'll destroy a church and he'll destroy a life. If you give room to the devil by remaining angry and not forgiving and allowing bitterness to fester, and the Hebrew says it defiles many, right? Do we see that the warfare is, has so much to do with this? Our spiritual warfare with the devil has so much to do with grace versus anti-grace. You want to give the devil room? Stay angry in sin. You want to cut off 
the devil from having an occasion in your life and letting bitterness spring up and destroying your life and others in the church. Walk in grace, in forgiveness with one another. It's interesting too when Jesus on the night, right before he was going to be mistreated really bad. I mean, if anybody in life was mistreated, it was Jesus. The one who did no sin was reviled, spit on, name called, beat up, betrayed, crucified, embarrassed before everybody. And he did not deserve that. And you know what he said when, when that night was just about to happen? He says, the devil's hour has come, but he's got nothing in me. He's got nothing in me. Meaning there's no sin he can find in me. There's no sin he can plant in me. He can't do anything to me. I'm not going to get bitter. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to revile. There's no sin in me. And that includes even revenge or anything like that. So Jesus is our example. The one who deserved, who had every right to get mad and bring allegiance of angels down. He said, the devil's got nothing in me. He's not going to bring his anti-grace poison this way. And we should, this is what Paul says, grow in this Christ-likeness. Grow in this Christ-likeness. How would that change, you think, our relationships? I wonder how much the devil has room in our homes and in our lives and in our church. I wonder. That would change things if we evict him and boot him out by walking in grace. 28, practical exhortation for thieves. Christians are not to be thieves, just so you know. We're not to be taken from people. We're to be giving and blessing people just as God gave to us. And you say, well, I'm really poor. I need to steal. Well, it even says in the Bible, Jesus became poor that he might make us rich. There's an entirely different motivation here as well for working. Because sometimes you have, you have lots of thieves in society, and the judge in the, on the block over there will say, you're a thief. Okay, what you need to do is go to jail, get, realize this is wrong, realize that you know, you deserve to be in jail and that you don't want to be in jail, then when you come out, you need to get a job and work so that you can support yourself so that you don't have to go back to jail because that's what you don't want to do. You don't want to be a menace to society, et cetera, et cetera. The motivation is, you know, you don't want to go back to jail, so don't steal. You need to get self-sufficient. The motivation here that Paul gives is a very different motivation. He says, the reason why you should not steal and you should work hard, labor is work hard in the Greek, with your hands, the thing which is good, that you may have to give to him that needs. So really, the motivation for not stealing isn't just so you don't go to jail. It's to consider the other person. The reason for working isn't just so that you can have food on your table, and it isn't just so that you can have luxuries. Well, those are not bad things. The reason you should work and make money is with a view to blessing others and giving to those who have need. Amazing, huh? Because we know God will take care of us, right? Doesn't Jesus say that the, the, uh, the lilies don't toil and spin, the birds don't make, they don't have farms? God feeds them, that's great. Why do we labor then? Do we labor so that we take care of ourselves because if we don't, God's not going to take care of us? You know? If I'm not working hard, then I'm going to starve and die. Not quite true, according to Jesus. But 
labor to bless others. If you have that mindset, I believe, to labor to bless others, God's going to bless your labor because he's in blessing others too. Verse 29. So as we begin to change our thinking about grace, about our position in Christ, who we are, who others are, seeing people through the eyes of grace, what also will change is our, what comes out of our mouths. So here's what Paul says. As our minds change, our mouths change. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Did he say a little bit less? One thing that strikes me as I am around non-believers and as I'm around when I used to work um, at the university, when I used to go to school and things, and when I went to high school, public school, is it's striking what comes out of people's mouths. It seems like people are always putting other people down. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it seems so normal and common and natural just to say things that are mean to one another, even in jest. And they're not building people up. Sometimes they really do hurt. And Paul says, let none of that come out of your mouth. This is a total contrast between the way the world speaks and the way Christians speak. No corrupt communication. Not any in the Greek. The word is not all or every. Not any corrupt communication. So if I had a bag of marbles and I had not any marbles in there, how many would come out if I tipped that bag upside down? If I had not any. Right. That's right. If I had not any marbles in my bag, no marbles would come out if I turned it upside down. None. Zero. And that's the idea. None. Zero. No corrupt communication come out of your mouth. Not any. There shouldn't be one marble hitting the floor, according to this verse. Do you believe that's possible? Have no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. No corrupt speech come out of your mouth. And the opposite is that which is edifying. It says here, but that which is good to the use of edifying, building one another up. This changes the atmosphere. The words are spoken in edifying. You know how words change atmosphere? If someone right now were to just shout out some profane thing, it would change the atmosphere in here, wouldn't it? <clears throat> the atmosphere in this place is such because of what we're talking about and singing about and praying about. Words affect the atmosphere. How would our, how would our lives be different and our atmosphere be different if the only thing that came out of our mouth was that which was to the use of edifying, to building one another up only. I think it would change much. And I love the last verse, the last part of this verse that says, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. That's the idea. We're talking about grace. We're reminding one another of grace. We're serving one another in grace. Everything that we say is about grace. 
Remember the verse? Let your speech always be seasoned with salt or grace, it says. Isn't it? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. If grace is in our minds, grace will be on our lips. You know, it's interesting, too, how often um, Christian maturity is connected with what comes out of our mouth. Whenever the Bible seems to talk about growing up as Christians, it seems to come back to this. What comes out of our mouth? Think about James chapter 3. He says, whoever can control this is a perfect man. Lots of verses in the Proverbs about what comes out of our mouth, showing whether we're wise or whether we're foolish. Ephesians chapter 4, as we read, as we grow in maturity and put off being a child, we will begin to speak the truth in love, is what he says. It's also interesting to note how many times the Bible describes the unrighteous by their mouth. Famous verse in Romans chapter 3, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, and deceit is under their tongue. The poison of asps is under their tongue. It's just interesting, all through the Old Testament, the righteous described what comes out of their mouth. Jesus talks about the fruit that we bear is actually the fruit of our lips, and what comes out of our heart is what comes out of, what comes out of our mouth is what comes out of our heart. It also is interesting to note how prophetic scriptures of Messiah Christ talk about his mouth too. How in, just for one example, because there's many, Psalm 45 verse 2, it says, grace is poured into your lips. It means Jesus was full of grace in his speech. Can you imagine Jesus belittling others and putting them down and speaking corrupt things while he was on this earth? He was full of grace and truth and so is what came out of his mouth. Brothers and sisters, there's, a, there's an emphasis in the Bible on what comes out of our mouth. As we grow in maturity and Christ-likeness, what comes out of our mouth will change and be gracious. So here's an exhortation. Consistent with the new identity that we are, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, only that which is gracious and good for edifying, that it may build one another up in grace. Isn't that wonderful? And you know verse 30 is connected with verse 29. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit and grieve not. The Holy Spirit of God. When we speak things that are harmful to one another, we are not just grieving that person. Do you know that? So if Michelle says something mean to Kim, she's not just hurting Kim. Elliot, if you say something mean to Peter, you're not just hurting Peter, and vice versa. You're grieving the Spirit of God, it says here. James Montgomery Boyce says this, it must grieve the Holy Spirit particularly when each of Christians, rather than building up the church as it should, is used to tear others who are part of that body. And they're part of that body because the Spirit put them in there. I don't know about you, but if I invited somebody to, to All Saints Church just to visit, and then like somebody like <laughs> tore them down or something, I feel pretty bad about that. You know? 
That's just a really crude analogy. The Spirit has made us one with one another. The Spirit here has sealed us into the day of redemption. That means God himself has blessed that person. God himself has saved and sealed that person, and we are tearing them down. Why would we want to tear down someone who God wants to build up? We're just fighting against God. So in context, do you see grieving the Holy Spirit as a grace versus non-grace issue? Because this is all about grace and non-grace. Sometimes we talk about grieving the Holy Spirit in other ways. you know. But what grieves the Holy Spirit most? The Spirit of grace. The Spirit who has saved us by Jesus Christ, brought us into this body, teaching us to live in grace. What grieves him is when we do all these things that Paul says to put off. What pleases the Holy Spirit and does not grieve him is when we walk in that same spirit of grace. That's the whole issue. Have you ever seen that? Grieving the Spirit and giving place to the devil, those two issues have to do with grace and non-grace. And lastly, uh, verse 31 and 32. Take these two together they're contrasted. So as you'll see the contrast very clearly, it says this, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. There's the contrast right there. So as it's been pointed out by many Malice or ill will is the root of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. You put, all, you put away all these things with all malice. It's malice that has caused these things to be. In contrast, in verse 32, it's kindness and tenderheartedness that brings you to forgive. So contrast malice and kindness and contrast the fruit of those things Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking with forgiveness. When you don't forgive somebody, you're bitter, angry, wrathful, clamorous, evil speaking. The opposite of those things is to forgive. And the root of both of those things is either malice or kindness and tenderheartedness. You ever thought of that, that forgiveness is a, is a fruit of kindness? A fruit of love? Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 13 says? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is the motivation for forgiveness. I, I haven't really thought of that much. Sometimes when it comes to forgiving, love isn't in, my, in, in view. It's just I need to forgive and I will forgive. When really my motivation to forgive should be love. The reason I'm not forgiving is because of malice. These things are set in contrast one to another. And everything in that list is self-explanatory except perhaps clamor. What is clamor? In the Greek, it means shouting. <laughs> That's all it means. As a matter of fact, the Good News Bible says, no more shouting. That's what it means. Let shouting be put away from you. You know, in the, in the first century, they shouted at one another in their homes. Imagine walking by someone's house and out of the windows, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> That would have happened. 
Just don't shout at one another anymore. How many of you ever shouted at each other? Why, why, why do we usually shout? <laughs> I mean, sometimes you can shout like because you're at a far distance from one another. Usually we shout we're in a close distance from <laughs> one another, right? <laughs> we shout because we're angry and bitter. Paul says, let all shouting be put away. <laughs> and, um, and forgive. And I'll just finish by pointing out this important point about forgiveness. And actually, I wrestled with this quite a lot the last few days as I was preparing this message. But as it says here in the end of verse 32, it says, forgive one another, even as God in Christ, is the correct translation, has forgiven you. Why are we supposed to forgive one another? Not only that's what Christ would do, not only that's what Christ does, that's what Christ did. That's good, though, that you pointed those out because it shows the contrast. That's an important thing, isn't it? Why do we forgive? Because, that's right, because God has forgiven you in Christ. That's the motivation for forgiving now. And I say that's the motivation for forgiving now because that wasn't the motivation before Christ, was it? Here is set or introduced the new covenant means or way of forgiving. The new covenant way of forgiving versus the old covenant way of forgiving. You say, what's the old covenant way of forgiving? The old covenant was all about forgiveness too, but it was conditional forgiveness, wasn't it? If you do this, I'll forgive. If you don't do this, I won't forgive. And one of those things, as you might recall, is in the Old Covenant was, if you don't forgive, then you won't be forgiven. And we think, well, that sounds kind of like a New Covenant thing. It's not. It actually sounds more like an Old Covenant thing as you consider that statement. Because if those are seen next to each other. Forgive as Christ forgave you. The new covenant way of forgiving. And the old covenant way of forgiving is forgive or else you won't be forgiven. They can't be put together. If you put them next to each other, you, you can't have these things as compatible with one another. There can't be two motivations. Well, what motivates me to forgive? Well, two things, actually. One is that Christ forgave me of all my sins, and two, that if I don't forgive, I won't be forgiven. <laughs> Those two things are incompatible with one another. You're going to give way to either one or the other. One is motivated by fear and law, and the other is simply motivated by grace. And one will always win over the other because they can't be together. The point is this, is that the motivation, the motivation for everything that we do, not just forgiveness, but here forgiveness, is that which comes freely from realizing what Christ has done for us. And no longer fear. No longer, you have to do this or else. But the motivation is now, do this because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. You see, if forgiveness if 
we had to forgive to be forgiven, as the Old Covenant teaches us, then not only would forgiveness be required of us, but also we'd have to be kind and tenderhearted in order to forgive. We'd also have to put off bitterness, anger, and wrath because all those things are inconsistent with forgiving, you see. So if we have to forgive in order to be forgiven, you also need not to be bitter, angry, can't say anything against anybody because all those things are, come out of malice and not out of forgiveness. So the list would just go on and on and on. And it would be compromising the gospel of grace where God justifies the ungodly through faith. That doesn't mean the ungodly aren't changed and they don't live in a new life and aren't instructed to forgive. And we're not saying for unforgiveness is wrong or a good thing. It is wrong. And God wants us to forgive. But here's the motivation. As Christ forgave us, now this is the way we forgive. You want to forgive someone and you're having a hard time forgiving? Here's what you need to hear. Christ died on the cross for all your filthy, wicked sin and loves you. And if you believe that, you are forgiven of all your sin. That should be your motivation. Now to turn to someone who's harmed you and to forgive them freely. So whatever we do as Christians that doesn't come freely out of grace, and if it's coerced by fear of punishment, then it's not the way God wants us to live. So the lesson here of all these things, there's no strong arming here. These are things that are simply consistent with our new identity in Christ. I like this one verse I'll close with in Galatians, and I think it's from the NIV, but it says this. Since we live in the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Lord, thank you for the gospel of grace that washes us clean from all of our sins and teaches us to live lives of grace. And I pray, Lord, for us here that, Lord, we would learn to set our minds on the things above and to see ourselves as dead unto sin and alive unto God, totally free from the law and now under grace. I pray, Lord, that you teach us how to walk in honesty and forgiveness, to live with one another in truth and peace. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that has sealed us unto the day of redemption. We want to keep in step with it. Lord, we just thank you for your word that instructs us and changes our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.